Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. I've been excited about this for a while. Today on the show, for the first time ever, we have not one, but two guests who have co-written an excellent book together. They're both currently researching nuclear fusion, and they've written a book about the future of fusion energy called, well, The Future of Fusion Energy. Dr. Justin Ball is currently studying plasma theory at Lausanne, and Jason Parisi works on turbulent transport in highly magnetised plasmas just a few buildings away from me here at the University of Oxford. Their book is an excellent guide to the science, history and future of fusion energy, and a real help in compiling the marathon run that the show has had so far, so I was excited to be able to grab both of them for an interview to talk about fusion. Since this comes after I've already been yakking about fusion for ages, the conversation does assume some knowledge of what nuclear fusion is, but should be easier to follow if you've listened to some of the episodes in this series already. This is the second part of the interview with Justin and Jason. It doesn't really depend on the first part, so you can dive right in here if you're a kind of non-linear person, but you may want to listen to the first part first. Without further ado then, the authors of The Future of Fusion Energy. Yeah, so I think this brings us on quite nicely then to uh, chapter 9 of the book, where you talk to, obviously, Justin, you are associated yourself with uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems, but also there's lots of other startups that are out there that all have various different methods by which they're trying to... Uh, <laughs> I, You know, I, I made a solemn pledge once that I would never use the word disrupt in this sense, but yeah, disrupt the fusion industry. <laughs> um, uh, mm. oh, I hate myself. It's fine. I can edit it out. It's all good. Um, these... <laughs> These startups that said they would uh, get a leg over, they would beat Eater to the punch by uh, using some sort of ingenious new type of solution. And ultimately, I suppose, in some ways, it's a question of letting many flowers bloom and hoping that one of them stumbles upon. And as you've said, sometimes Mother Nature throws you a bone, right? And there's a, a wonderful plasma configuration mm-hmm. that no one has seen before. That uh, th- there's There's nothing really in the laws of physics, I suppose, that really prevent you from uh, discovering something like that, particularly when you're exposing the plasma to new kinds of uh, approach. But um, so, d- for the course of writing the book, did you get a chance to interview lots of the people involved in these uh, uh, fusion startups? What was that like, and could you tell us about some of them? I'm sure. Yeah. So we, I mean, we reached out to a lot of them um, with varying degrees of success, and so like some mm-hmm. are quite secretive. For instance, uh, like Lockheed Martin, we couldn't even find like an email address to send. Um, others, you know, like uh, Commonwealth Fusion is um, very closely associated with the academic community. Um, we so some of their stuff has been published in the recent past, right? Which is not the case for a private company like Lockheed that that barely needs to publish anything that they're doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, for example, uh, uh, TAE Energy was really nice and uh, sat down with a you know a Skype interview with us and uh, you know these you know tokamaks are really complicated. There's been a bunch of research on them. All of these fusion startups are as, as complicated as, as tokamaks in terms of from a physics perspective. And so you know even us as fusion scientists, it's really difficult to wrap our heads around how these devices work, what's their potential drawbacks, what are their potential advantages, and so. Um, you know, more information is always better. And so like, for example, TAE and also General Fusion did a good job of like walking us through how they see their device and um, how they envision it working. Just to bring on to one in particular, <laughs> General Fusion. I th- So the concept that they have, as I understand it, and again, you've talked to them, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they have 
a device where you inject your deuterium tritium fuel into the center of this kind of spinning vortex of molten metal. And then they have all of these pistons on the outside of their device. And the idea is that they're all going to simultaneously, uh, you know, to within a few fractions of a millisecond, compress all of that, uh, uh, the, all of that molten metal at the same time and cause a kind of spherical shock wave that will uh, come in and compress that inner fuel capsule. And so in some ways, it's similar to what inertial confinement fusion scientists with lasers were trying to do, where you compress a capsule to a very, very, very small uh, size, very high temperatures and densities, and it hopefully produces enough energy to make that whole effort that you'd set up beforehand worthwhile. Um, and it, it just astonishes me that 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 this device could work because it seems and maybe i'm being naive here but it seems like getting the they had a real problem with nif the national ignition facility and other laser devices getting anything that was sufficiently spherically symmetric to compress their capsule down to this size and the idea that if you can't do it with lasers you could do it mechanically with pistons and so on is just amazing to me so i mean what how did they talk about their device and and how they viewed it and you know, have I missed a, a trick in the description that makes it seem more feasible? So, I mean, the, their design has uh, changed somewhat as they've learned more about it. And so I, I think initially it was what you're talking about, where they have these huge pistons that just, um, you know, slam on this liquid metal and propagate a shockwave through, um, which just like, you know, it seemed, it's very, it seemed like a very violent um, uh, shockwave. And it seems like it would, you know, um, caused liquid metal to go in the plasma and lead to be everywhere. And um, from a, at least from my perspective, it seemed quite challenging. Now they're doing uh, more of a slow compression. So the idea is that uh, what they're pursuing is called magnet, magnetized target fusion. And it's, it's, a, it's a compromise between uh, normal magnetic confinement, like a tokamak, and inertial confinement, like the NIF laser system. And so you start off with a magnetically confined plasma, and then you compress it, a la inertial confinement. Um, and so initially, they were having this this uh, shock wave to provide much more extreme compression, um, so that it would be more similar to a NIF-like device. And now they're kind of smoothly pushing in liquid metal to compress it more slowly, less violently. And so now it's more towards the uh, magnetic confinement tokamak-like uh, approach. But I mean, so they're they're quite open um, with the community and and engage. Um, and the the main thing that I'm worried about is uh, the potential for the liquid metal, liquid lithium lead, to get into the plasma and contaminate it. Um, the liquid metal is really elegant because it it really solves your material science concerns of. Uh, Meaning that you don't have solid material that um, you know it gets weakened by neutron damage, but at the same time, the, the, one of the keys for getting good performance on the original tokamak in Russia was to just fastidiously clean the wall and make sure that you weren't having any impurities, any like large atoms like lead or nickel or whatever getting into the into the plasma. And it seems like if you have liquid right right um, next to the plasma that's getting compressed that there's a lot of potential for, for impurity contamination. 
yeah, if it's if it's actually a separate substance that's physically compressing the plasma, it's very difficult to see how some of that is not going to get in there somehow and then radiate away all that energy that you've been trying to deliver to the heart of your plasma. And also providing that amount of energy density to a single point by like mechanical processes of physically pushing on an object is also just something that I I honestly don't know whether it can or can't be done. But I remember there's some stories from very, very early in the days of fusion where people we're almost trying to do this ballistically, like fire loads of pellets at your mm. uh, target fuel to see if you could compress it that way. And of course, the, the, it, it was just a non-starter because you, you need something with the spherical symmetry and the energy density, the sort of ability to deliver all that power to a, to a point that a laser has to, to even start thinking about this stuff, from my perspective. But it would be wonderful if we were proved wrong, as ever. Uh, yeah, agreed. I mean, nothing would be better for for the fusion community as well as the world as a whole for um, one of these startups to succeed. Um, but it, as far as so, so one of the main things we were we were interested in from the startups is what triple product they'd achieved because that kind of yeah, gives exactly. a sense of of where they are currently. And we did a literature review. We asked a lot, and as far as we can tell, none of the startups have achieved the triple product that. Uh, the T3 device in um, Russia in 1968 got. And so this was the device that kind of started the tokamak revolution um, in fusion. And so as far as we know, um, the startups have yet to yet to match that. There is there is one uh, Helion Energy, but I think if I, if I remember correctly, their, their triple product was about the same as T3, right? But like the, the duration of their shot was two orders of magnitude or maybe even three orders of magnitude shorter. So I think what Justin is saying is pretty amazing. And, and you know, this the T3 Tokamak, which I think was kind of built in 1968, so over 50 years ago now, um, these startups still haven't achieved the same level of plasma performance as something built over 50 years ago. Um, it tells you just how good the Tokamak concept actually is and how hard it will be to beat. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, perspective. And, you know, thank you guys for going out and getting the actual data, because, of course, the issue with the, with not all of these companies, and you've said that they vary in their degrees of openness and so on, is that, uh, but, you know, if all you really see from someone is advertising copy where they say, and we've made a whole hour without saying it, but, you know, fusion in 20 years, if that's all they say with their advertising copy, um, then it's very difficult to know whether they have anything that can back up that kind of statement at all. But uh, listeners too will remember that the T3 Tokamak was the one which caused the, the column five to go over into the Soviet Union with their lasers to actually measure the temperature of the Tokamak. And I suppose at the time it was extremely surprising to them because there was a device that was outperforming all of their devices by miles and miles and miles. And to the extent that they actually felt the need to send people beyond the Iron Curtain to measure that it was really doing what it was supposed to. Um, so, well, th this is interesting then, because I suppose what all of these startups would say in in response is, yes, we may not have achieved this yet, but there's always the potential that once we do make some breakthroughs, we could uh, advance uh, at a much faster pace. But again, it almost seems like when we look at how Tokamak's advanced, Tokamak uh, triple products and confinement times, they've been following this sort of well, it's a bit like a Moore's law, isn't it? I guess you guys actually say in your book it's faster than Moore's law. But even with that in place, it still takes many years of continuous development of the Tokamak concept uh, to really get to the stage where we are now, where they're close to 
achieving break even where you get the same energy out as you put in theoretically um so do you feel that even with all of these sort of fancy and physically complicated designs uh if one of them does show promise like the tokamak did in the 60s it could still be another you know few decades of developing that device before it gets to the stage uh, to compete with some of the more established contenders? I, I, I'll just make a quick point, which is the basic fact is this, that they essentially need to get, uh, they need to improve their triple product by about, depending on the device, I think five to seven orders of magnitude. Um, Millions of times. Yeah, exactly. Um, to get close to something that would um, be viable. So yes we're shooting for them and we're really hoping that they're gonna um you know get there and there could be some amazing regime in which they do um but at the moment i'm i, I think i'm i'm you know healthily skeptical i would say i'd love to be pretty wrong. i mean the the challenge is is balancing the funding for new ideas versus the funding for ideas that have performed well in the past and it's definitely good to fund new ideas um, and the funding for startups is generally relatively small. So like even the, about the biggest um, uh, startup is, is TAE that is about the same size as like, uh, it employs around 100 people or 150 people. It's about the same size as the uh, TCV staff here at the Swiss Plasma Center. So these aren't, these aren't um, you know, huge efforts. Um, but I think the problem is if they undercut um, like say the Eater effort of, you know, Eater is trying to sustain um, funding for a device that takes 20 years to build. And these startups are saying that they can do um, fusion in 10. And so it, uh, my worry is, is if it, if it undercuts um, bigger efforts. Although it does seem like the funding sources are a bit different, right? Yeah, they're very, more- they're very different. Yep. So you're talking about progress. One of the things that's really lacking in fusion is is milestones of, like from the public's perspective, it's really difficult to judge progress in fusion. And so it you know it doesn't seem like any progress has been made, right? It's just you build a new device and there's new instabilities. Um, yeah. But I mean, like the instabilities that we're dealing with now are you know micro instabilities that are these small turbulent fluctuations that cause energy to leak out of the device, whereas in you know the 19 60s and 50s, we were talking about, you know, these huge MHD stabilities that were causing the plasma to slam into the wall. And so people don't have real life experience with this stuff. And so it doesn't seem like much progress has been made. Yeah, I feel like that that graph, the sort of Moore's law graph of how tokamaks have improved, is still the best thing you can show to people when they're saying, why is it that we should fund your next tokamak again? Mm. Uh, Because you can show them that Although the story can seem depressingly familiar in the sense that we built a device and then we encountered some new way that plasma behaves terribly, um, the, the, the real the story behind that that's less easy to see is that actually everything that has been done has been incremental progress. I think one thing that that reminds me of is the, the famous story of uh, the Zeta project in Harwell, which is not too far away from where uh, some of us are sitting now, uh, which was heralded at the time as being the breakthrough of fusion energy. And then it turned out that the neutrons they observed weren't from thermonuclear reactions. Um, and it was a big sort of embarrassment and uh, an upset over that. But then a few months or years later, uh, similar devices did achieve what what Zeta was supposed to have achieved, and they did achieve thermonuclear fusion reactions. And that story, that progress kind of got buried by the high-profile uh, um, debacle over Zeta. I mean, do you think that maybe 
fusion scientists or or people similar and this is obviously part of why you've written your book um need to communicate with the public in a in a different way to avoid this kind of thing from happening or do you blame people who write headlines uh yes both definitely both <laughs> i mean fusion is public communication uh, for scientists in general is is difficult and especially for fusion because you know there's this um you know, holy grail perception of mentality of, you know, the energy problem is solved, carbon-free energy, right? And so it makes really flashy headlines. And so in, you know, in a lot of respects, that's really good for fusion because it's it's much easier to sell than more abstract research. Um, but on the other hand, it can really lead to um, miscommunications. And so I know it seems like whenever whenever there's a fusion development, the thing that people are interested in is how many years into a fusion power plant, right? So a startup has a new concept. Reporters ask how long until um, this will be a power plant. And so for fusion researchers, I guess it's it's a challenge of, of setting expectations. And so you can give the most optimistic timeframe that you can, um, but then it leads to this perception that you know, fusion fusion researchers are always saying that fusion is twenty years away. As far as as far as concrete like steps to improve this, I mean, a big a big reason why we why we've written this book is to um, give the motivated layperson a perspective on fusion. And so, if there's a reporter who's writing a story on fusion, um, this book is is exactly targeted at them and will give them perspective on on how to interpret the. Um, the most recent development. I think the book does a really good job of explaining uh, this, the history and science, and as well, a lot of the power plant design concerns, which is quite esoteric and it is a discussion, I guess, that has not really had that much in the popular coverage of fusion. Um, you know, the real engineering practicalities of getting this thing to work. Um, when it came to analogies for fusion, I really liked the one about mini golf holes. Um, I also interviewed Zach Wienersmith for this show, and he had this book Soonish, which was all about uh, you know forthcoming technologies. And his fusion analogy—I don't know if you've read it—was about shy, geeky people at a party. You know, it's difficult <laughs> to get them to couple up at first, but once they overcome the potential barrier, they're inseparable, and a lot of energy is released. Um, so, which which aspects of the uh, of the science of fusion did you find most difficult to explain? And you know, how did you come up with some of these uh, analogies to help explain them? So getting people uh, kind of updated with the state-of-the-art research, um, obviously that takes quite a bit of background. So, for example, I don't think it's ever mentioned, or it's very hard to actually get a grasp of what people are researching in fusion, at least physicists, um, if you're just a lay person and you don't have the time to you know, go through research papers and see what people are doing. Um, so I thought introducing things such as turbulence was quite challenging uh, and doing it at the right level. Um, also, the um, talking about how much um, various breakthroughs have contributed to the field. So especially... Um, Exascale, not exascale, but uh, but but uh, multi-scale computing, right? Where you can you can you can parallelize thousands, if not tens of thousands, um, of processes, and how you can use that in the right way. Um, and and finally, uh, the bootstrap current, like Justin was saying, um, because I I think it's safe to say without the bootstrap current, we would be a lot further away from our, our current goal. Um, that is currently the case. 
So we really tried to equip people not only with the knowledge, but the tools to um, think about fusion such that, you know, in the future when ETA does inevitably turn on uh, and we start getting results from it um, and a few other tokamaks and other um, fusion startups are going to, you know, be reporting interesting results, which I, I hope happens quite soon, um, people will be able to say, oh, okay, I understand these principles um, and I, I have a bit of insight as to um, how how worthy this this story is. As as far as uh, analogies, I mean, I think just everyday life is is the best source of analogies. Um, you know, I think all of us have been at the party that Zach Wienersmith is is uh, describing, where we initially feel shy and then meet someone that we really uh, um, has something to talk to about. And so just there's lots, of, especially especially living in Switzerland, which is such a multicultural society, has driven home the fact that there's just so many um, commonalities between people from all over the world. And that's really what you need um, for communicating some of these really technical scientific principles is to put it in terms of things that everyone is familiar with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a, it's such an interesting challenge because I've certainly found, especially with this show where I'm trying to explain things about physics in an audio format, one of the real challenges is getting across what I want to do, uh, what I want to explain without pointing at an equation ever. So I had this one episode where I tried to explain the semi-empirical mass formula um, mm. and sort of the approximation to the mass of the nuclei. And, you know, hopefully those uh, hardy survivors who did listen to all of that episode will say, oh, you did a great job. But there were a lot of times where I wanted to point to an equation. And uh, your book is, is, is quite, there's, there's equations in there. Um, and you don't go through the whole sort of Stephen Hawking route of just having one, but um, you can understand the broad uh, strokes of the physics without really looking at them. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of cool uh, how, not, I wouldn't say easy, but if you have the right analogy, how much physical insight you can get into physics just through uh, everyday everyday occurrences. I think that's, that's really, uh, really nice. Well, our world has a very good physics engine that we're all quite familiar with. <laughs> Yeah. Did you try to trace each term in the semi-empirical mass formula to a different aspect of attending a party, or (laughs) that would have been a good idea? Um, I I don't know how one would work out the asymmetry term for a party. Although you know, I suppose maybe you could. Like different rooms are filling up at different rates, and (laughs) good luck with that. You 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 guys have got me in trouble now. I'm going to spend all day trying to work out how to do this. When it comes to studying the history of fusion, there's lots of different fascinating characters who show up. You have Lyman Spitzer, you have people like Ronald Richter, who was not really a fusion scientist, but more of a fraudster, I guess. So when, you, when you're looking through this uh, fusion narrative, and as fusion scientists yourselves, did you find yourself kind of identifying with some of the heroes of the fusion narrative in the story? Or, or equally, were there any sort of unusual or strange characters that uh, you particularly uh, view with the fondness and or alarm i mean for, certainly from what i've looked at edward teller is one of those where although you know he made his contribution to the development of fusion and nuclear physics um as a character he's he's interesting to say the least yeah, so, um going through the history of fusion uh definitely the i didn't really identify with with any of them but i really appreciated lyman spitzer's perspective because he's, you know, at the very early days of fusion, um, the U.S. And, the U- uh, and Soviet Union really led everything. 
And so uh, I can't read Russian. And so I don't really have much of a perspective into the early days of, of the Soviet program. But Spitzer really shows like in the just when this is just barely getting off the ground, uh, what they thought of it. And so recently I read a, a report of Spitzer from like 1952 or something very early on. And it's amazing how much they already know. He's, always ta- he's already talking about turbulence. He says, we have no evidence either for or against the hypothesis that there is turbulence in the plasma. Um, just technically, uh, it's, it's really impressive. And I really admire how, how much of a perspective and how, I guess, empirical and scientific he was about the, the whole endeavor. Um, one, of the, one of the good things about fusion is that it's a pretty small community. And so... Uh, and it's only you know it's only been going on for seventy years, so a lot of a lot of uh, the leaders are um, from the early days are still alive. And so you know, walking around Cullum Lab, you um, run into um, you know not people that are famous outside of fusion, but you run into the the greats from plasma theory, and it's uh, humbling. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I was um, at the uh, the U.S. Fusion Theory Conference, which is called Sherwood. Uh, sometime last month and it was the 70th was it the 70th or 60th i think it was the 60th anniversary of it uh and um one of the, the one of the people who organized the first uh fusion theory conference uh russell coltred uh he was there uh and he's uh he's still at pppl and this guy is just like a giant in the field if you read uh lots of the initial papers on mhd stability and uh magnetic geometry he was uh he was the pioneer of that of this stuff um I think as for, like Justin, I didn't really identify with any of the characters just for various reasons. But I think as a theorist, um, someone who really, uh, who I really had a lot of respect for and really wish I could have met at some point uh, was Marshall Rosenbluth, um, who was basically just, I think he was known as the Pope of plasma physics. <laughs> and he was just like... I, I, like an infinite source of knowledge and insight. Uh, and in my research, I mean, I'm I'm reading quite a few of the papers and comparing things, uh, some of my results with him. And kind of like what Justin was saying, uh, in terms of Spitzer knowing a lot, like Spitzer already knew that turbulent transport could be a problem. Uh, Rosenbluth, like um, uh, in some of these instabilities that I'm looking at, like he had a huge amount of insight. Uh, and it's just, yeah, I, I really wish I could, um, you know, I aspire to be as, prodigious as someone like him one day um so that was he's really impressive figure uh, also worked on the nuclear bomb project i think uh but yeah amazing physicist yeah we've we've done quite a few shows about the nuclear bomb project both in uh the us and in the ussr and it never ceases to strike me how you do have this remarkable group of individuals that come out from these projects uh, you know you have sakharov in the in the soviet union and uh plenty of different people like uh Oppenheimer and so on and, and the US side and there's, there's sort of uh, narratives and stories that come out of that in this in this era that really in many ways changed the world because I mean the releasing of nuclear energy it, if, if there was no nuclear bomb the geopolitics of the world that we live in today would be very different I think we would have had more wars for a start yeah but I mean it's it's um I I, I think it's pretty obvious that someone sooner or later would have uh, would have figured it out oh of course of course 
but uh, you know, yeah. whenever anything like that is born, there's always some quite interesting stories that come out of it, I suppose. So on, on a similar topic, one of the arguments that you advanced for fusion early on is the idea that it allows countries to have nuclear energy technology without as big a risk of nuclear proliferation. Um, I mean, could you outline some of the differences and why it is that f- fusion is less useful for people who want to develop uh, nuclear weapons? So I, I think the most one of the most important facts to always have at the, the back of your mind is that for any nuclear weapon, you need fissile material. Uh, and um, if you had a world without any fissile material stocks um, around, so no, um, no fission power, no nuclear weapons, it would be exceedingly hard uh, to, well, you'd first need to acquire some new nuclear material. There's no such thing as a pure fusion nuclear weapon. You can't use chemical explosives to start off a fusion reaction in a bomb. And like, you know, people have tried. People have tried and it hasn't worked. So um, I guess the point is, is that A, um, fusion power by itself with no fission power um, has has, um, severely, I think, decreased proliferation risks. There are proliferation risks, which Justin and I can can go into. Um, And B, um, if you have uh, both fission and fusion coexisting at the same time, um, the increased availability of things like tritium from the fusion plants isn't really a significant risk um, in terms of using the tritium or whatever to boost your nuclear weapons. Um, so Justin and I spent quite a lot of time thinking about this, and I think that the main picture is that um, actually uh, f- fusion has a um, minimal um proliferation risk that the the thing that was uh, most concerning to Justin and I was the um the use of a fusion reactor as a, a very intense neutron source so suddenly you've got these um these high energy neutrons coming out at a very high uh, flux from a fusion reactor and um people have speculated that someone who would like to proliferate an agent um that wants to do that could clandestinely uh put um fertile material uh so that's material that can be um uh can be made uh, uh fissile by uh absorbing neutrons or whatever um you can you can inject that into the blanket like the tritium blanket of a uh of a fusion reactor and you could use the uh the um the fusion neutrons to enrich the material um and calculations have shown that if you put uh fertile material like uranium 233 into a um like a gigawatt sized um fusion plant then in as little as two days you could actually create uh enough um material to uh build a nuclear weapon so like a, a an actual uh yeah it's, it's it's probably several kilograms that you need to a significant quantity is defined as um how much you need to build a uh, a nuclear device the problem is and the good thing is is that it will require several weeks to actually take it out of the device and process it. Um, so as long as you have very strict monitoring on your um, on your fusion plants, and if you assume that you see any um, fissile material or kind of, you know, uh, fertile material on site that they're trying to proliferate, um, then you've actually got a system that is very easy to control. So broadly speaking, I mean, the, the difference here is that fusion devices using these light isotopes, which aren't really uh, fuel for nuclear bombs per se, and uh, fission devices, you're having lots of heavy isotopes, which basically are nuclear bomb fuel. I mean, it's almost 
<laughs> you almost have a nuclear bomb that's just being slowed down in its explosion, and that's what a fission plant is. Uh, exactly, yeah. And so in, in a fission plant, in normal operation, you have plutonium, you have uh, uranium all over the place. And so if you detect plutonium in a fission power plant, that's nothing special because it's supposed to be there. But in a fusion power plant, you can have sensors and the moment they detect plutonium, the moment they detect uranium, alarms can go off. Everyone knows that you know, people are being evil and that something should stop. And so as long as you have, say, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Authority, monitoring sites, um, you can be sure that uh, you can't proliferate because this stuff is easy to detect and should, shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And then you combine this with the enhanced safety risk of the fact that, you know, the failure mode for a tokamak is essentially the worst thing that will happen is you might destroy your tokamak, but you're not going to yep. uh, spread... Uh, radioactive material over Chernobyl-like distances and so on. Yeah, so there's this issue of uh, nuclear waste. So obviously in a fission power plant, the nuclear waste is this waste fuel, which are the sort of fragments of your nuclei that have split apart and they remain radioactive for thousands of years and need to be buried underground and all this sort of thing um, in specially designed facilities with special markings on the outside that could be recognized even with uh, future civilizations that have lost the use of language and all sorts of crazy things have to happen for responsible disposal of fission waste. There is a lot of waste from fusion as well, though, in the sense that this intense neutron bombardment on components of the reactor and the first wall and things along this line um, does produce radioactive material. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about some of the waste concerns, the nuclear waste concerns from fusion and how they sort of match up to fission? Uh, you you made a good summary. So in, in fission, you have the fission products that are inherently radioactive, and there's really no way around that. Um, for fusion, the neutron that comes off can activate the first wall, it can activate um, just components around. But that's the important difference is in designing our power plant, we get to choose what we put around. So the radioactive waste um, is there, but it's not intrinsic. And so we can, um, as we get better at fusion, we can design the first wall, design the surrounding components to minimize the type, the, the danger of the radioactive waste as well as, as its amount, as well as its lifetime. And so, you know, just from the start, even if you do things, um, you know, very simplistically, the amount of radioactive waste in a fusion plant is somewhere around a thousand times less than um, in a fission plant. And instead of lasting for tens or hundreds of thousands of years, most estimates are that it would uh, waste from a fusion plant would be safe in 100 years, 200 years, something like that. Um, and then, you know, you can get better over time. And this is, of course, another aspect that makes fusion potentially more economical than fission, because a big part of what people don't like about investing in fission plants is this long term commitment to safeguarding the waste. When it comes to the fuel for fusion plants, um, most of the plants that are being operated at the moment, like uh, JET and eventually ITER, are running on deuterium-tritium uh, fusion reactions. And I think ultimately the aim would probably be to move to deuterium-deuterium fusion, because tritium is kind of hard to get your hands on. And there are currently uh, schemes to recover some of the tritium or make more tritium as part of your fusion reactor's uh, running cycle. So, I mean... How feasible do you think, how much of a concern do you think the fuel is for fusion power plants 
in particular tritium and trying to recover that from the reaction. Well, quickly, just to say, by the way, so only two tokamaks have actually ever operated DT. Um, most of them are operating at levels where the fusion power is negligible. They're just, um, yeah, because tritium requires okay. all kinds of licensing and stuff. Um, I see. But when they're running their shots to get as much power as possible, they operate in DT. Is that right? No, only two uh, only two tokamaks have ever actually done DT. There was um, TFTR in Princeton, uh, which first did it in 1991. And then um, JET did it a few years afterwards. But we haven't actually had any... Um, large-scale DT tokamak campaign since 1997. Yeah, so the, the general idea is that tritium is expensive, it's radioactive, it's just a huge, it's a huge headache. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most experiments run on pure deuterium. So they, they produce relatively little fusion power, like very little fusion power. Um, and you understand how the plasma behaves. And it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward um, to understand how a DT plasma a deuterium tritium plasma would have behaved. So the plasmas behave pretty much the same. And then you can imagine how much power would, would have been produced. I see. So, But um, in the long term for, I guess, the first practical tokamak power plant demo, the plan there is to run with DT or with DD? So sorry, so power plants would have to use uh, deuterium tritium. And so as far as um, getting tritium, it's, it's definitely true. You, I think power plants have to be uh, self-sufficient, meaning they produce as much deuterium as they consume. Um, and that's by using a lithium breeding reaction with a neutron. Um, and so it is, it is a challenge and it's particularly challenging because um, we've never been able to experimentally test this. So the few devices, so JET and TFTR, that have used deuterium tritium as fuel didn't produce um, very long plasma discharges, so they didn't produce very many um, deuterium tritium neutrons. And so you can't actually test uh, experimentally the schemes to generate tritium. And so the physics of it are pretty well known. So you can use neutronics codes um, that are used for nuclear bombs or whatever. You can, you can use these codes to, to um, model the, the behavior of the neutrons and to calculate how much tritium would be generated if you set up your reactor in, in some certain way. Um, and so the, there are codes that, that calculate this. And so I'm, I'm convinced that this is a, a solvable problem. I think like I'm, I'm much more, for instance, mm-hmm. concerned about disruptions than I am about tritium breeding. Tritium breeding. That being said, it hasn't been experimentally tested, it, tested yet, and um, it, is, uh, it will be an engineering challenge uh, because... Tritium is really precious, and so you can't, you can't let it, uh, you can't lose it. You can't. Um, you have to be really careful about. Uh, and just to add, it, it might be useful to, to say that um, ETA is testing a variety of um, tritium blanket concepts, but it's not going to be self-sufficient in tritium, just because most of the wall is going to be covered in diagnostics and heating and and whatnot. Yes, because it's uh, an experiment rather than a power plant yeah, prototype. So ITER is due to be switched on if there are no more delays in a few years. Um, could you take us through what ITER is going to do when it's switched on and what are going to be the sort of major milestones to look for, the major achievements that this particular uh, experiment has hoped to have and you know some of the maybe perils and pitfalls that you might see along the way as well? So like most fusion experiment or most big fusion experiments, it'll be switched on in stages. And so um, 2025 is the date for the first plasma. 
And so uh, initially they'll be operating very conservatively without um, a lot of different heating systems. And so this will be just basically proof of principle. We can create a plasma. Um, uh, interestingly, Eater will be so good at fusion that it won't be able to use deuterium deuterium even because it would create too many uh, deuterium deuterium neutrons. And so it will be running, I think, with either helium or just wow. normal hydrogen initially. And then uh, these, these preliminary experiments um, will be used to study how the plasma behaves. And then you just gradually increase performance, right? So heating systems will be gradually added to it. Um, and more aggressive discharges will be, um, will be used. And of course, all the during this time, you're going to be looking for disruptions, right? And trying to figure out how they behave, because in the early stages, you can use really, um, you know, puny plasma discharges mm -hmm. to figure out how things work, and then gradually move them up, um, because of course, you don't want to don't want to damage the device. Um, and then ultimately, about ten years later, right now it's scheduled for 2035, um, will be the first deuterium tritium experiment, and so that's when kind of the full might of ITER will be unleashed. Um, and that's when you'll um, install the tritium breeding modules potentially would be sometime after that to trust uh, tritium breeding schemes. And so they already have, um, yeah, so they, they already have kind of the general experimental, the shape of the general experimental program set up. Uh, in that way, just to minimize. So it's fair to say that maybe perhaps the primary goal of the first 10 years is to see how the plasma and the reactor behave compared to, you know, the theoretical models of how it will behave, particularly sort of seeking that upper limit of how high you can push the uh, the plasma density and so on until you start hitting these disruptions. And then subsequently is when they go for their, uh, as, as, in, as in Jet's case, I mean, Jet, I think, was originally built in... 1983 and then they didn't really hit their peak power until 1997 right. so again there was a stage where there was sort of 10 years of experimenting with the device and uh learning as much as they could from it before they went for their um peak plasma power shot i guess and it seems like we'll be following a similar sort of cycle for eater but even the even the early days of eater will be really interesting so seeing oh of course um like you know, Jason was talking about the this uh, pedestal that exists at the edge of the edge of the plasma, and so just seeing um, what the pedestal looks like, um, kind of uh, how how good it is, um, will be something that could be seen before going to full deuterium tritium shots, and that will tell us a lot about what the performance will be. So it's really a moment of truth when people start getting data out of yep. that that will. Uh come fairly shortly after the thing is first switched on, which is, you know, looming at this stage. Um, how, how do you feel just sort of, there was a wonderful article that you linked to in the book um, when you were talking about ITER, which detailed this stage where ITER was um, in considerable difficulty mm. and, you know, ultimately the project had to be delayed and the head was uh, replaced by Bernard Bigot, who <laughs> was quoted, I think, on the cover of the book, which was quite a coup. Um, so uh, do you view ITER as being a project that is now in, in safer hands and, and going to go ahead on time or is there still the potential for things to get delayed and go wrong with it? I mean there's, there's always uncertainty right especially with large engineering projects like this but it does seem in the past few years that things have um, been uh, on schedule so that's, that's been really uh, promising. 
Yeah, I think things definitely look um, look better than in that. I think it was around 2014 when things were really seeming mm-hmm. like they were going through a, a critical stage. Uh, things seem on a on a better track now. Um, it is important to keep in mind that Eater is just like an um, immensely ambitious experiment, right? Like it's, I think about, I think it is the world's biggest scientific collaboration. And so um, we've talked exclusively about technical challenges of Eater, but the political challenges are in a lot of ways just as formidable of, uh, you know, the Eater project was founded by a treaty between Reagan and Gorbachev. And so there's mm-hmm. all sorts of uh, um political challenges that then cause uh, logistical challenges um, to the project as well. And uh, the Americans themselves have not necessarily been the best uh, uh, contributors and most sort of faithful partners in this endeavor. But I suppose in some ways, given the, the, the way that global politics works, it's kind of amazing that the project has held together um, across those decades with the partners that it's had for so long. Yeah, I mean, l- these large these large international projects have a lot of inertia, which can be good. So like when it was going through the, the challenges in 2014, having um, this big political weight behind it, I mean, it's, it's, hard. Um, it's hard to change, which can be a good thing. But then on the other hand, yeah, trying to keep, you know, 35 different countries on the same page for 20 years is just incredible. So uh, looking to the future, there is one question I'd like to ask that's not actually that much related to fusion, but I just think that you guys will have interesting perspectives on it because we've we've done a lot of uh, episodes on this show about the future of humanity. We've had series about existential risks, uh, artificial intelligence, this sort of double-edged sword that arises when new technologies arise and the fact that technological developments can often offer us great improvements to our lives while also exposing us all to great risks. I mean, where do you view uh, the trajectory that our species is headed on? And I guess, what role do you think fusion will have to play in that in so the future? I think, um, it, I mean, the, the future of humanity is obviously a fascinating but and huge topic. I, I would say for fusion itself, something um, that makes me optimistic about the future is fusion, because um, if we manage to get it working, You've mentioned these technological double-edged swords, right? It's you have you have some kind of scientific and technological breakthrough that gives you this new um, capability, but it's really up to humans and how we organize ourselves to determine, um, you know, wh- whether we curtail the worst elements of it and, and optimize the best. And fusion, uh, commercial fusion, um, really is a shining example of how humanity says, "Look, we have the ability to blow ourselves up," you know many times over with nuclear weapons um but we didn't do it uh instead what we did is we actually worked on something that was extremely hard for over a century or roughly a century hopefully from the time fusion began fusion research began um uh you know in an international effort that required long-term vision and investment beyond our own lifetimes even um and we actually came to the point where we can now um build fusion reactors. Uh, so I think just from a psychological perspective, if we do that, um, that would be incredible because, um, you know, knowledge of the, the strong nuclear force and binding, nuclear binding energy, that's probably the sharpest double-edged sword we've discovered so far, right? Um, and then, mm, very well, obviously, we still have nuclear weapons. So that's the other side to deal with. But at least we did something good with it. 
Uh, and I think fission power is also a good example of something good. But fusion is a lot, I think, a lot harder and and uh, even better. And then um, secondly, um, fusion is exciting because we talked a lot about um, electricity generation uh, and all that kind of stuff. But I think really um, from what Justin and I concluded from our investigation for the book is that if you want um, either manned interstellar, if you want manned interstellar or even interplanetary travel to the outer uh, you know, bodies of the solar system, then fusion really is the ideal fuel for that. And for interstellar travel, chemical is just not going to do it at all. Fission is marginal and you need fusion. So I, I think fusion is really, you know, it's it's a technology that enables, um, you know, the stars to open to our species. And it's something that in the long term, um, we will look back on and be very, very glad that we invested in. Um, and finally, what I would add to that is that um, lots of people at the moment are talking, I, I mean, obviously climate change and resource constraints, it's a huge problem. Um, the thing I like about fusion is it's like this, um, it's, a, it's a vision for the future of our species that is is based um, on abundance and, uh, and based, uh, you know, on us having very large amounts of resources to do useful things with rather than scarcity. Uh, and I happen to think that vision of humanity is a lot more inspiring um, than uh, us just staying on this planet and, um, you know, and, and living more frugally. So, yeah, that's, those are my two sets. Okay. Well, just on this tangent, um, if I could, uh, the interstellar travel and fusion is a really fascinating uh, combination of topics that I'm sure the listeners will be intrigued by. Um, so uh, we've talked about it very briefly in one of our episodes on the Starshot project, which is this idea that you would launch sort of cube satellites into space using a big array of lasers on the ground that would, uh, you know, accelerate them to some appreciable fraction of the speed of light, which is the real bar for interstellar travel is actually, you know, either having a slower but sustained journey or something that's going at a s appreciable fraction uh, of light speed. Mm -hmm. And that these would launch these satellites to the nearest planet, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, and uh, have a look around. Um, so why is it that fusion is the sort of superior uh, fuel for use in these journeys? Is it just a matter of uh, the fuel itself, or what? What? What's? Uh, what leads you to these conclusions? So, so it's uh, it's really energy density, um, mm -hmm. because the challenge is if you want to take if you want to go really fast somewhere, you need a lot of fuel. But then at the start of the journey, you need to accelerate all of the fuel that you're going to use later in the journey. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, this exponential dependence. So basically, um, the weight of the fuel, uh, you can spend all of your energy accelerating the weight of the fuel needed for later in your journey. Now, if the fuel weighs less, so basically if you can have more energy with less weight, then... Um, there's this uh, beneficial feedback. It's, a, it's an exponential dependence. So it's really helpful to have the highest energy densities possible. And so fusion um, is that. And so it's uh, you can carry along the most energy possible with the least amount of weight. Well, if I was really playing with uh, fire, I could talk about antimatter, <laughs> which probably gives you even higher energy density, but obviously has its own issues yeah. on account of how it can't come into contact with anything else. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, we looked at we looked into that. It's it's a fascinating topic. Um, and fusion, obviously, like we're struggling to make 
a device on Earth to make a, a device that's lightweight enough to be put onto a, an interstellar spacecraft is much more challenging. Mm-hmm. And so this Eight is, is this not going to fit on one. Yeah, this is more speculative, but of course. Um, antimatter yeah, is, is even more speculative than that. And so, <laughs> yeah, fusion... But also just to quickly say for the, the Project Starshot, I mean, that's not a manned mission, right? There are these very, very... No, of course not. No, you would never get that kind of payload out with that. Yeah, so so for something like that, I mean, what they're proposing seems to be ideal. Uh, but if you want if you want to transport heavy things, then yeah, you need a you need something uh, where you carry the own your own fuel with you. It seems. And just to, just as a quick number, if you want to get up to five percent of the speed of light um, with uh, fusion, um, you if you had a fusion propulse uh, propulsion system, you need to carry about the same amount of propellant. Well, half the mass of your ship has to be fuel. However, if you want to get up to 5% of the speed of light with fission, um, it's like th- uh, you need to have thousands th- thousands of times more fuel um, than you do um, with uh, yeah, yeah, than the actual dry mass of your ship. And with chemical, like it's just, you probably couldn't even get that fast with the whole mass of the solar system as fuel. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what the ratios are for you know the the shuttles and things that are being used at the moment, but it is mostly fuel by mass, and then the payload is a much smaller uh, fraction of it, I guess. Finally, then, I think amongst fusion scientists, and I think you've almost both of you maybe have alluded to this a little bit earlier on. There's something of a cathedral mentality that has developed, which is, in other words, in the 1950s when these real efforts towards fusion started, you could see why people might think that it it could be relatively easy because, you know, that in a few decades they'd gone from no one knew what a nucleus was to nuclei have been split to blow up cities in Japan. You know, that's a horrible thing that happened, but it just demonstrates the level of progress in the science over a very short era of time. And so it was perhaps perfectly feasible to think that in the same way that civilian fission power had become a reality, um, it might be possible to expect fusion to be providing even more power in an even better way within a few decades and within again, within the lifetimes of the experimenters. And now the timescale that we have, you know, depending on how, of course, all of these uh, fusion startups pan out, is essentially saying that, uh, you know, we might see a demonstration power plant constructed in 2050 or later. And, you know, although we are all uh, staggeringly young people, we'll be getting on at that point. And it's clear that many of the people in 2019 who have discovered just what a challenge this project really is, have had to kind of adopt a mentality that their beginning work will be completed by others in future generations, like you know the group of masons laying the stonework at the base of a cathedral, aware that they might never live to see the roof being built. And you know it 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 comes to uh, Jason in what you're saying about um, spreading beyond the stars. And I know there's all these uh, thought in in uh, futurist circles about how the best thing you can do is to maximize the ability of humanity to spread amongst the stars because then you enable you know trillions upon trillions of future humans to be born and if you're the kind of person who uh, likes to maximize utility functions that's probably a good thing to do um but do you, do you feel like this cathedral mentality is the mentality of the fusion community and perhaps both of you speaking from you know personal experience and the people that you've talked to is it a field where you have to have a certain amount of idealism to succeed or or try or is it just that you're working on an incredibly difficult and fascinating physics problem, and the, you know the the long term consequences of it provide a kind of extra incentive and motivation to keep going. So I think it's it's a combination. Um, talking to people, I think scientific curiosity is a big reason why people getting get into the field. Like just uh, problems are very 
just very interesting to work on. Um, personally, like even you know, I'm, I'm really excited for the Eater project. Um, but one of my motivations is the cathedral mentality of, uh, you know, with, with climate change and resource usage, as Jason pointed out, um, we're kind of handicapping future generations a lot. And so it's, it's great to know that we're building something that will be useful in the future, right? We're, we're gathering knowledge about a topic that at some point or another, um, will benefit mankind. And so, you know, fusion is the energy source of the universe. At some point, um, it will will certainly become uh, helpful. And it's nice to know that people now are giving that as knowledge as a gift to, to future generations. Yeah, so I mean, what I would say is, uh, people are motivated by many different things. Uh, I honestly think uh, that lots of people uh, in fusion and kind of in turbulence research are really just motivated by the interesting plasma physics questions there are. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, people, some people really mind if fusion works or not. Obviously, they would like it to work, but that's not their main motivation. And then you get other people at the other side of the spectrum who really, you know, are are gunning for it to happen. Um, I think it's... uh, I, I kind of lie somewhere in between that. Um, I, I think that you see the cathedral mentality. Some people don't want to be the cathedral masons. They want to build the whole thing, which is what <laughs> startups are doing, right? Um, which is which is admirable uh, for many reasons. Um, and I think there's a good chance that, you know, uh, people of our age will just live to see the roof being completed and, uh, you know, the cathedral doing its thing. Um, just about. I hope. I hope we will see it. Um, but even if I knew, for example, that it's not going to happen until after I die, I'd still continue to work on it because it's just, it's a noble question and it's a fascinating question. And I think we shouldn't be too confident in, in predicting the future, right? Like we, we know for a fact that there's going to be just an immense change in the way we generate energy. And so we talk about timescales. Um, but what we really should talk about is is funding dollars for fusion, right? And so the distance to fusion is is can vary, like the time to fusion will vary dramatically about with how much we're pursuing it. And so, you know, who knows what the future holds? Well, on that note, I would like to say thank you, Jason and Justin, very much for coming on the show. Their book, The Future of Fusion Energy, you can get a hold of on Amazon or indeed in many places where books are sold. And it is extremely worth your time. A very wonderful read. Explains the science more clearly than I think any uh, popular book on fusion that I've seen and contains all of the sort of fascinating uh, historical anecdotes and stories that show up throughout the history of fusion. So it's very much worth your time. And thank you both very much for your time and coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. My guests were Justin Ball and Jason Parisi. If you'd like to find out more, please do get their book, The Future of Fusion Energy, which is both a highly entertaining and highly informative read. They also both have websites in the same format, justin-ball.com and jason-parisi.com, and they can both be found on Twitter if you're into that sort of thing. Remember, comments, questions, concerns, feedback, etc. can all be directed to me on Twitter at PhysicsPod or via the contact form on our website at www.physicspodcast.com. 
It's always so wonderful to hear from listeners, and this is your chance to help me make the show as good as it can be. You can also help us out by leaving a review on iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, purchasing past bonus episodes from the website, or leaving a donation via the PayPal form on the website, or just telling as many people as possible about the show to help spread the word if you like what we do. Until next time then, take care.